0: It seems so clichéd to start off by saying I never believed in ghosts until, but there it is. A few years ago, I moved into a one bedroom apartment in Melbourne, Australia. It was my first time living alone. The apartment block had been built in the 1930s. After being there a few months, I came home from work one day to find the wooden board over the attic entrance laying broken on the ground in two pieces. I examined them. The board was an inch thick It would have taken a martial arts expert to break it. Had the landlord sent someone to work on the attic without telling me? I was paralyzed with fear. Someone was up there. I could feel it. I took several pictures and emailed them to my landlord. She replied in minutes with, please call me as soon as you can. Over the phone, she assured me the board would be replaced and that the previous tenants had experienced the same thing. A month later, I bolted awake at 4 a.m. to find myself covered in goosebumps. The apartment was silent, but as my eyes adjusted, I began to hear a heavy dragging sound from above. Someone was in the attic. The noise ruled out the possibility of an animal. It sounded like a person lugging a sack of potatoes across the floor. After about five minutes, I worked up the courage to switch on the light and creep toward the attic door, armed with a cricket bat. The new board was broken in two. I felt sick. By now, the dragging sound had stopped, but something even more unsettling replaced it whispering as i listened in stark terror i could make out the voices of children saying over and over it's your turn it's your turn i threw on every light in the apartment and watched television to try and settle my nerves at 5 a.m a fuse blew plunging the apartment in darkness Dexter, my pet bird, began squawking from his cage in the kitchen. This was odd, since he usually never made a peep after sundown. Not only that, the sound was frantic. He wasn't just squawking, he was screaming. I'm not proud of this, but I grabbed my keys and ran outside to wait for Dawn in the safety of my car. Later, emboldened at the sight of my neighbors on an early morning walk, I ventured back inside. The front door was wide open. I knew I'd closed it on the way out. Running to the kitchen, my stomach sank to discover Dexter wasn't in his cage. I found him thrashing in the toilet, half drowned. Thankfully, he recovered. But later, when I called my landlord to explain the situation, she replied with, oh, wow, you heard the whispers, too. For the next 18 months of my lease, I heard the whispering again a handful of times. Twice the board over the attic door moved on its own. These days I live somewhere else. But my old landlord rang me up not that long ago to say her current tenants are experiencing the same things. Good luck to them, I say. It's their problem now.
1: Hi! I'm Jamie Markey.
0: And I'm Michael Tatum. And this
1: is Ghoul Intentions! Hooray! Yay! (laughs) Now on Tuesdays. Now on Tuesdays. Oh, by the way, we're we're gonna be on Tuesdays now instead of Mondays.
0: (laughs) Scheduling so much easier to do. Monday is hard to do, you guys. Monday is like the last. I I'm Mike Garfield. Can't do Mondays.
1: Yeah, I don't. Right. I don't know, I don't know why true.
0: Garfield has such a horrible time with Mondays. It's not like he has a fucking job or anything, but <laughs> <That's true. laughs> you know. What's he doing? Uh,
1: uh, our, our, uh we've realized that <laughs> <laughs> with um when we get to do conventions again when those come back, that we usually come back on Sunday or Monday. So recording mm-hmm. on Monday is going to be a challenge, and so we're gonna try to.
0: The challenge is a the challenge is a very kind word. Impossible is is the word I would use. It's gonna
1: be the worst. And that's
0: of course assuming conventions come back. I have I have this horrible sinking feeling that we're gonna be old and gray before we we do another convention, Jamie. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Of course we may just
0: we may just be gray after all this. (laughs)
1: <laughs> That's an alien joke. Uh- <laughs> no, it was a
0: stress joke, but sure, you can make it oh. an alien joke. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, just all I hear are greys. You know where we've been this whole week. Right. Um,
0: <laughs> great
1: story, by the way. Lovely job. Yes,
0: that comes from uh, Reddit user DigDaws, Um And uh, I know.
1: <laughs> DigDaws.
0: DigDaws. I, I, yes. I can't pronounce it in the Melbourne accent, so I'm sure it means something. But but yeah, Manhattan. Hashtag fucking attic. <laughs> yeah. Oof. Although Oof, I present. will say, like, if you're gonna have a bird, um, like, and the bird is screaming bloody murder, like, I I don't know. I I feel like I would have a pang or two of conscience <laughs> before I right. just left the goddamn thing there. But at least the bird made it out okay. I guess, you know, maybe the cade was was too big to like take out to the car. I have no idea. I have no idea. Just saying, I'm like, if there's ever something like that going on in this house, my Frenchies are going to be the first out the goddamn door. I know.
1: But that might not be your choice. They'll be, both of them will be like, peace.
0: Yeah, they'd be out. Um,
1: (laughs) Right? And then there would be a line of people ready to take them in.
0: I'm speaking, (laughs) right? I'm speaking of which, um, have you watched the new uh, Nukes Top Five this week? Yes. Oh my god, the one with the with the grandma, the ghost of grandma and the filter. Yes. It, like I wanna try yeah. that filter on my phone. I'm so terrified. I'm gonna be like, I Yep, know. that's exactly what I thought would happen. But like usually that shit, I'm like, Oh, that's not that's nothing. But that that one guy's video, I'm like, All right.
1: Okay. Yeah, that's it's uh, interesting. That's, but, that's well, <laughs> very jump scale we started it with the girls, but Callista got too scared. She's seven now, and fear is much more real to her than it has ever been, um, which is, you know, I'm being patient with, with it. But it's really irritating to me. It's like, oh, come on. <laughs> but she's seven, and I understand that. So I'm working through my issues uh, and being patient with her. So we, we stopped it. But Serafina is still very much into it. Uh, she's ten. And she does tick. She ticks and she talks as well. (laughs) And so I'm curious if she's going to do that filter to see.
0: Oh, you know she will. What happens? And she's gonna freak you the fuck out.
1: I know. (sighs) Maybe we'll do it together. Oh, that'd be great. See what happens. I mean, Freak great? out, Jack. Get Jack to say, "Oh, that's weird," that's and then weird. just Callista to cr- <laughs> crumble into a pile of tears, fear tears.
0: I had uh, my thing. my godson when I was growing up. When I was like in my early twenties, I had a godson who was uh, probably in his. I guess he was about six or seven years old at the time, and he and his buddies loved ghost stories, so my his mom and I would tell stories all the time. But they had a little friend who was just a drama queen, and she was like, I want to be included in the ghost stories, Daddy. <laughs> and we'd start yeah. telling them, and she'd be like, No, no, don't tell me. I'm scared. And I'd, st- mm-hmm. I'd start telling him, and she'd be like, No, no, you have to continue the story. <laughs> I don't know why I'm, I'm making her sound like one of the children from Mary Poppins. She was not. I like but- it, though. But yeah, I was just like, why do you want me to tell you that goddamn story if you're going to be scared? I got the stories.
1: Callista right now. She wants to know, but she's too scared and then she's like, I can't go to pee by myself. It's too scary. Can you and in, like, can you
0: tell me this story in a non-scary way and then you find yourself having to be like, okay, so the person was murdered by, uh the person was um
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Uh an axe touched them a lot uh and and they um they went away. <laughs>
1: and then that was it. And that Yay. Was, they had an itch. And that doesn't sound and then much they better. scratched it and got rid of all itches forever.
0: Touched by an angel, an ax-wielding yeah. angel. <laughs> um. Yeah.
1: But, uh, yeah, we're trying to, to work through that. Now, she'll play video games fine. She's no problem, you know, shooting someone and having them explode in front of her in a video game. <laughs> But the scarabs <laughs> and the mummy, those are too much. Those are too scary. <laughs> and the mummy.
0: What was the dumbest thing you were scared of as a kid that you can't even relate to anymore? Like, why the fuck was I scared of that? Like, wh- do you have anything like that? I don't imagine you were um, afraid of much as a kid. I somehow just can't square that with what I, was I know. I was afraid of, of dolls
1: in the dark, and I am still but you're afraid still of, both scared of, of them. <laughs> <laughs> so I am not really big on growth. <laughs>
0: I, I, You were scared of them and they just kind of evolved and matured into a uh, distaste uh, That's I was, true, now
1: I just, de- like, I detest them
0: I used to be terrified of <laughs> elevators um, oh, And okay, not no. because I was claustrophobic, because I wasn't claustrophobic I used to, like, hide in my toy box all the time and it didn't bother me Like, closed-in spaces weren't an issue But something about an elevator just bugged the shit out of me And I hated being on them uh, now I'm fine, of course, cause I'm on elevators all the time. It's where I live. But man, when I was a kid, I could not shake it. Like my parents and my brother thought I was full of shit. They're like, come on, you're being a drama queen. But then we had to, we were on vacation somewhere and we had to get on an elevator and like go up like 30 floors to our hotel room or some shit like that. It might've been three, but I was a kid. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and my parents say I had like a straight up panic attack in the elevator, and I'm like, I don't Aww. remember. I just blacked out. And they're like, okay, he hates elevators now. So um, I
1: wonder why.
0: I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I died oh, in an yeah. elevator in a previous life, or maybe I was just like, I don't feel safe when I'm moving in something that I can't see out of. Maybe that's right. maybe that's the the thing. I also used to hate um, uh, uh, not Ferris wheels, uh, uh, carousels. I didn't want to get on a carousel. That I have no idea. Right. I just thought they yeah. just freaked me out in some indefinable way, and now I'm like, no, no, I think they're cool. Now I want like a, I want one in my house.
1: Yeah, maybe <laughs> the music. The music can be kind of creepy, circusy. Yeah,
0: I guess. But this was yeah, the, this maybe. was before I developed my my distaste for clowns. So <laughs> <laughs> distaste. My, I have my, a distaste. My, for dolls. My, I find them revolting.
1: Yeah, oh. my uh, one of the things that one of the benefits of the fear that has happened is um, she now is afraid of dolls. And I'm like, well, let's <laughs> like, get rid of them. We like, don't need them in this house. We can take them. care of that right now. <laughs> welcome, welcome to my side. And Serafina just thinks it's
0: hilarious. So. I
1: will... um, OK, so
0: <laughs> you're sorry. today's sorry.
1: title.
0: What is our title, Jamie?
1: Is Delusions of Morality. Oh. And that is from Aliens, the movie what? Aliens. Um and the whole line is I admire its purity a survivor unclouded by conscience remorse or delusions of morality and that line uh, <sighs> was said by Ash who was played by the great Sir Ian Holm who passed oh. away on the nineteenth.
0: May he rest. For in those peace. who
1: don't know him, um, if you have if you don't know him as Ash. You might know him as Old Bilbo from The Lord of the Rings mm-hmm, and The Hobbit mm-hmm, films. Mm-hmm. Napoleon and Time Bandit. That's a big <laughs> yes, one. Yes, yes. But my favorite is the priest Vito Cornelius from uh-huh. The Fifth Element. Yeah. That's one of my favorite things. So he was awesome. That is our title, though, Delusions of Morality. Uh, it seemed appropriate given
0: our <laughs> Given continued our, topic. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. And, Jamie, I'm going to... I guess I'm starting us off today, right, with yes, the conclusion? Yeah, you got to finish it. Although, uh, there's not really a conclusion because, I mean, it's there's a big old question mark in this whole thing. But, I mean, you know, before I begin, uh, I do have to address some errata From last episode, um, the author of The Real Men in Black is Nick Redfern. Not Redfern. I said his name like I'm... (laughs) How
1: embarrassing. So
0: sorry. I said his name like a British person. And he is a British person, but it's Nick Redfern, R-E-D-F-E-R-N. So if you want to check out those books, that's the name I need to give you, not the other one. There is no Nick Redfern, as far as I know, who's written a book about the men in black. Uh, Also, I mentioned a guy uh, who wrote a book called They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers. We will be talking a little bit more about him today. His name is Gray Barker, not Gary. Gray. What a difference two letters in different positions make.
1: You just struggled with R's.
0: i i I just i'm a little dyslexic um and sometimes (laughs) when i'm reading it comes out and i'm like oh that's the word uh so that and let's just go ahead and jump into to the continuation of where we left off last week so as our listeners will no doubt recall and jamie if you need a refresher let me know um when we left off last week albert bender had disbanded the ifsb Uh, at the command of three ominous, dark-suited strangers who appeared to him in his stepfather's attic where he lived. Uh, This was in 1953. Now the story, as told by Bender's colleague, Gray Barker, in his book, They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers, assumes that these men were FBI agents, Uh, This version carries considerable weight on the face of things since Barker claims Bender told him the story not long after it actually happened. Yet, the encounter as described in Bender's book, The uh, uh, Flying Saucers and the Three Men, published nine years later in 1962, paints an altogether different picture because according to Bender, the sinister trio was decidedly not of this world. <laughs> I, just, I just love saying that. Um, for one thing, if you'll recall, in the blink of an eye, these men were able to transport Bender to a high-tech underground layer in Antarctica, where he was permitted to chat with, who else? Aliens. Uh, on condition, of course, that he never reveal what was discussed. Should he ever be tempted to go public with his knowledge, excruciating headaches would remind him of the power these bizarre beings seemed to possess. Now, if you find all that straining the limits of belief, Don't worry, you're not alone. Uh, But Hmm. it's worth considering that that may very well be the point. See, the esoteric jargon and half-cocked pseudoscience bandied about in Flying Saucers and The Three Men read like something out of an Ed Wood movie. It's absurd. And by absurd, I'm talking about Merriam-Webster's secondary definition of the word, quote, ridiculous, arousing amusement, or derision. So perhaps, just perhaps, the MIB somehow manipulated Bender into discrediting himself, and by extension not just the IFSB, but every civilian UFO research group to follow. Perhaps the events described by Bender through the lens of hindsight are written in a kind of code like Lewis Carroll, so we can think of flying men and the or flying saucers and the three men as kind of a, a through the looking glass allegory meant to be unpacked only by an elect enlightened few, might have also just been Bender's loophole for getting around the whole headache thing. <laughs> <laughs> Um, But for all that, the Antarctica angle sets Bender's story apart from the horde of MIB encounters that cropped up in its wake. What interests me more are the details his story has in common with those told by other ufologists, especially the details that seem to smack of the supernatural. But we'll get to that in a second. One more note about the disparity between Bender's version of the story and Gray Barker's version of Bender's story. Now, Whether or not you ascribe to the theory that the MIB are government agents enlisted to shall we say, discourage UFO witnesses from coming forward, it is a matter of public record that J. Edgar Hoover ordered a copy of Barker's book, They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers, the year it was published. This just so happened to be the same year the famous Robertson Panel was formed. What is the Robertson Panel, you ask? Or was the Robertson Panel? Well, it was a committee of government-appointed scientists assembled on the CIA's recommendation after the Air Force put out Project Blue Book. The Robertson panel reached a rather controversial verdict as to the hundreds of UFO sightings comprised in the report. Most of them, they said, if not all, were either hoaxes or just misidentified natural phenomenon. Go home, everyone. Nothing to see here. Uh, on a juicy side note, the Robertson panel's most <laughs> accomplished uh, accomplished civilian consultant, astronomer by the name of J. Allen Hynek, d- decried UFOs right along with the other panelists as just pure nonsense, but later, and not much later, pulled a complete 180. After conducting his own independent research into UFOs, Hynek was convinced they were real and went on to establish himself as one of the most outspoken ufologists of the 20th century. How you like them apples? Um... <laughs> As for Albert Bender, you'll be happy to know that despite the paranoia and poor health that afflicted his IFSB phase, he did find lasting happiness in the arms of one Betty Rose, whom he married in 1954, the year after all this shit happened. The couple moved to California where Bender would manage a successful hotel and found an appreciation society dedicated not to UFOs, but to the music of max steiner the film composer he died in 2016 at the ripe old age of 94. now mind you this is the guy that was terrified of getting cancer in his 20s so hey huh Lucky lucky him. Uh, But going back to the 50s and and onward, um, I hinted that other MIB visitations were happening around the same time and that these were also packed with bizarre features before the crazier details of Bender's experience were known. The apparent supernatural dimension to these reports is important here because the only version of Bender's story available to potential copycats before 1962 was the one told by Gray Barker, who framed the story, as you recall, in very down-to-earth terms. Hell, it's possible Bender may have even inserted the paranormal elements of Flying Saucers and the Three Men into his story after the fact because he was eager to kind of square up with what the MIB legend had since become. Case in point, another notable connection, Gray Barker's inaugural foray into UFO research was an article he wrote on the Flatwoods Monster, an outlandishly bizarre creature seen in connection with the UFO sighting in Braxton County, West Virginia, on the night of September 12, 1952. Now, the story is worthy of an episode all its own, and we'll probably do one uh, at some point, but, <laughs> but uh, the interesting thing here is that going by eyewitness descriptions, the Flatwoods Monster bears a striking. Resemblance to the aliens Bender would later claim to have met in Antarctica, and that's important because fucking nothing else looks like the Flatwoods Monster. <laughs> it's not your typical looking alien. It's a very look it up, uh, Google search the Flatwoods Monster, and you'll be like, oh, <laughs> it looks like it looks like a weird cross between like R2D2 and Mr. Potato Head. Um <laughs> Also, Braxton, West Virginia, just so happens to be within a hundred or so miles of point pleasant home of, you guessed it,
1: the Mothman,
0: which of course I can't mention without spending a moment on our old friend John Keel. Now, if Albert Bender was the reluctant source of the MIB mythos, Gray Barker and John Keel together were the diametrically opposed hype men of the MIB legend. Barker gave us the classic government agent MIB. Keel, in contrast, ran with the more uncanny implications of Bender's story and gave us an MIB much, much weirder. And while John Keel was known to have been something of a trickster, not above embellishing eyewitness accounts to help advance ideas intended to expand the minds of his readers, he never made shit up completely. And Gray Barker was positively loathed by fellow ufologists as an outright fraud, in fact, he freely admitted later to pranking several of his colleagues throughout his checkered career. Um, But I digress. I just think it's interesting how the less fantastic version of the MIB legend was popularized by a man known for playing fast and loose with the truth, while the version that beggars belief comes from a man who freely admits to having once been mistaken for a man in black himself. In the opening pages of The Mothman Prophecies, and we may have covered this before, but it's worth revisiting, Kiel recounts the story of a couple roused from sleep in the middle of a dark, rain-lashed night by a knock at their door. A drenched, swarthy man in classic MIB garb asks if he can use their phone. He's had car trouble and needs a tow. Not liking the cut of this fellow's jib, the couple refuses. Sorry, go the fuck on. <laughs> he just re- radiates a kind of Mephistopheles vibe, they said. Uh, later, when visitations from the MIB are running rampant in Point Pleasant, the couple's story will reach Keel through Mary Hire. Kiel has a good laugh over it because he was the mysterious stranger on their doorstep that night. His car had broken down while he was in the area investigating the Mothman. Now, Kiel cleverly uses this simple misunderstanding to underscore how stories like this take on a life all their own. Belief of any kind, he says in so many words, inevitably colors our perception of events. So much so that from a researcher's standpoint, especially on topics like this, digging for the unadulterated truth is a fool's errand. Um, In fact, the story I told last week about Mary Heyer. Full disclosure, Mary's encounter with the strange little man who ran off with her ballpoint pen while laughing maniacally is actually a mashup of several encounters the journalist had with the MIB throughout 1967. In addition to the dwarf, a gentleman who called himself Jack Brown later approached Mary at the Athens Messenger, where she had an office. This man was as tall as his predecessor had been short. He was rail-thin, his fingers were inhumanly long and fidgety, but in all other respects Jack Brown and the dwarf could have been brothers, right down to their choice of clothing. This mysterious Jack Brown is the one who asked Mary what she'd do if someone asked her to stop investigating UFOs, and to which she brazenly replied, I'd tell them to go to hell. This gentleman, who, like his diminutive prototype, spoke with a torturous stammer claimed to be a, uh, and claimed to be a UFO researcher himself. Mary asked if he knew John Keel, who at that point she'd been working with for several months, and the man became visibly upset, uh, ultimately saying John Keel is a liar. Incidentally, after leaving the Athens messenger office, this Jack Brown fellow paid a visit to Mary Carpenter, an early Mothman eyewitness who had a harrowing run-in with the creature while driving home from church. Carpenter developed conjunctivitis as a result of her encounter with the Mothman, and though she'd spoken to several people about it initially, after talking with Jack Brown, she clammed up on the subject of Mothman for almost 30 goddamn years.
1: Conjunctivitis. Pink eye. She got pink. Pink eye. Pink
0: eye? Uh, sphinx, from it? Specifically a kind of pink eye that comes from overexposure to radiation.
1: Oh, <clears throat> I was like Yeah. Not like, like what they shit in her eye, like what <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, she was That's the mothman what... just like shot on her face. No, no, <laughs> it's it's it... Yikes. so there are there are multiple kinds of conjunctivitis and um okay. the, the the pink eye you can get well the pink eye that you can get from the brown eye is not <laughs> what <laughs> is not ah. what happened to Mary Carpenter.
1: Okay, um, okay.
0: Uh, John Keel's own encounters with the men in black compete with Albert Bender's for all-out weirdness, minus the Antarctica detail. Uh, during one such visit, when a trio of black-suited weirdos was putting the screws to Keel in his apartment, one of them, it said, rifled through his kitchen sink, or rifled under his kitchen sink, and produced a bottle of Clorox bleach. What is this? He asked Keel in a dry, (laughs) utterly unaffected monotone. Keel explained it was bleach. The man opened the bottle and shoved it under Keel's nose, repeating the question. When Keel repeated his answer, the man took a huge swig and passed the bottle off to his companions. Between the three of them, they gulped down the Clorox in seconds with no ill effects. Keel took this to be an egregious display of power. The message was clear: these entities were not subject to the laws of our reality, and they could still get COVID. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Don't fucking drink bleach, you morons uh, <laughs> I say with love to only the people that applies to uh, <laughs> Now, <laughs> closer to Bender's encounter in time Is the tale told secondhand to UFO researcher Harold T. Wilkins Whose source preferred, for reasons that will become clear, to stay anonymous. In 1953, the same year Bender was magically transported to Antarctica, albeit nine years before that part of the story would uh, go public, an attorney's office became the focus for MIB activity. According to Wilkins' source, two tall, inhumanly gaunt men whose style of clothing you can probably guess at this point appeared unannounced in the attorney's office one afternoon where the source worked. Without ceremony, without paperwork, or even the ghost of an explanation, these odd characters were immediately given high-level positions within the firm. Only the boss appeared to have any knowledge as to who these men were or what the fuck they were doing there, and he wasn't talking. Uh, the appearance and behavior of these men quickly set their co-workers on edge. Their hands and wrists, for example, moved with an almost surreal fluidity, like they had no joints in them. The source described the men as acting like they had only a kind of abstract understanding of how human beings behaved. Uh, they proved completely... Bedazzled, not bedazzled, that's not the word. (laughs) Baffled, but baffled, bedeviled. They were
1: covered in (laughs) glitter and rhinestones. And the hot glue was a mess.
0: They were completely baffled (laughs) by simple things like doors. And while we can feasibly chalk these antics down to a couple of Yahoos playing the part for reasons best known to themselves. One detail rather pulls the rug out from under that interpretation, provided we take it at face value. These men also exhibited inhuman strength. One of them left a half inch deep imprint of his hand on a metal filing cabinet just by leaning on the goddamn thing. A startled coworker convinced that these men were up to no good, contacted the FBI in secret as you did in those days before a field agent could show up to uh, assess the threat. However, the two men had vanished never to be seen again. Now, with stories wow. like these reaching ufologists by the truckload throughout the 50s and 60s, by the 1970s, the Men in Black had transformed from, uh, in popular consciousness, from government agents to beings akin to, uh, more akin to dark entities from ancient folklore. Consider this chilling tale from Dr. Herbert Hopkins, a GP from Orchard Beach, Maine. A patient named David Stevens from the nearby town of Oxford, Maine, confided in Hopkins that he'd experienced a period of missing after seeing strange aerial lights in October of 1975. Intrigued, Hopkins, an experienced hypnotist, subjected Stevens to regression therapy. Little did the good doctor realize that by opening the door to Stevens' repressed memories of alien abduction, he was in fact inviting a visit from the men in black. Around 8 p.m. on the evening of September 11, 1976, Hopkins received a phone call from someone claiming to be with the New Jersey UFO Research Organization. Uh, they wanted to interview Hopkins about the David Stevens case. Was he free that night? Could they use his home? Hopkins agreed, unaware that no such organization existed. In hindsight, Hopkins' decision to let the caller interview him at home was incredibly reckless, especially given that his house had been broken into twice the month prior. Also, he'd somehow failed to get the man's name before hanging up. Hopkins felt later that he'd somehow been tricked into the encounter. Under normal circumstances, he would never have let a stranger into his home. Turning on the porch light for his impending visitor, Hopkins was shocked to find the man already walking up the driveway to his front porch. No mode of transportation was visible, nor was there a payphone anywhere nearby that could account for the man arriving so quickly after hanging up. This was way before cell phones, bear in mind. Even stranger, when the guy showed up, Hopkins just nonchalantly let the bastard in. In his book, The Real Men in Black, Nick Redfern describes Hopkins' visitor in detail. (laughs) Quote, The man's clothes and Homburg hat were utterly black, his suede gloves were gray, his skin was deathly white, and his body was skinny in the extreme, as was evidenced by the fact that the man's wrinkle-free suit was clearly way too large for his sickly-looking skeletal frame. More astonishing, when the man sat down and removed his Homburg hat, Hopkins could not fail to see that he was devoid of any hair on his head. There was not even any telltale stubble. In addition, he lacked both eyebrows and eyelashes. The man's bright red, extremely thin lips stood out dramatically in contrast to his milk-white skin, end quote. Hopkins' dog, a German Shepherd collie mix, barked frantically upon the man's entrance, tucking its tail between its legs and darting into a nearby closet for the duration of the man's stay. Unfazed by the dog's reaction, the man got down to brass tacks and began grilling Hopkins on the Stevens case. His questions, though, were odd not in line with what Hopkins had expected. This guy seemed fixated on mundane details with little to no obvious relevance to the Stevens experience. He spoke in an emotionless, robotic monotone with no discernible accent, and at one point, he placed a gloved hand to his lips, and Hopkins noted in disbelief that the gloves were stained red. The guy was wearing bright red lipstick. Now here, things took... A rather sinister turn, the man informed Hopkins that he, Hopkins, had two coins in his left pocket. Though he hadn't put them there himself, Hopkins was astonished to find that, indeed, what the man said was true. The man then instructed Hopkins to hold one coin in the palm of each hand and focus on them without looking up. Under no circumstances was Hopkins to let his gaze wander to the man until it was he was told it was safe. Hopkins watched dumbfounded as one of the coins took on a pale blue color and proceeded to evaporate right before his eyes. Ew. Do you recall Barney Hill, the man asked. Hopkins was now allowed to look up. Of course he remembered Barney Hill. Barney and his wife Betty were the first UFO witnesses on record to describe what would later become the classic abductee experience back in 1961. Hopkins had been obsessed with the case. The visitor claimed that Barney had died in 1969, quote, because he had no heart just as you no longer have that coin." All at once, Hopkins understood this was a threat. The man ordered Hopkins to destroy all data relative to the Stevens case, assuring him he'd know if the order wasn't followed. Having spelled out his purpose, the visitor's speech began to slow down. He rose unsteadily and wobbled to the door, offering a clumsily worded explanation to the effect that his energy was draining. An astonished Hopkins, writes Redfern, could only watch with a mixture of fear and trepidation as the man took slow, cautious steps toward a very bright light that was illuminating the driveway to such an extent that Hopkins couldn't make out what was responsible for the intense glow, only that it was no car, quote. Hopkins yeah. rushed to the kitchen window for a better look at what sort of vehicle this man was getting into, but in the few seconds it took him to get there, the street was empty. Unsurprisingly, Hopkins swore off investigating alien abductees for good, demagnetizing all of the tapes of his interviews with David Stevens and burying every file in his possession. Alas, this did little to assuage the side effects of this unsettling visitation. For weeks afterwards, the Hopkins household was plagued by poltergeist activity. Hopkins had nightmares of the man in black hovering over his bed, the ghastly face growing larger and larger until it filled the room. The phone rang off the hook day and night with calls reminiscent of the one that gave Albert Bender splitting headaches. Eventually, it all stopped, but the experience left Hopkins a changed man. Ufologist and latter-day expert on Men in Black, Brad Steiger, raises a fascinating point about Hopkins' story, the visitor's ability to dematerialize a metal coin. Quote, many of the great alchemists, he says, were seeking to find angels that they could command, end quote. That is to say, entities that could perform exactly the sort of magic displayed by Hopkins' Man in Black. Uh, Steger has unearthed a number of accounts of medieval alchemists who were uh, visited by tall aristocratic strangers in all black that demonstrated an ability to transmute base metals into gold. It's just part of the alchemist lore. Steger's observation gives us the perfect segue, it turns out, into an MIB encounter I find absolutely enthralling for batshitted craziness. (laughs) Um, Though relatively recent, it has to do not with UFOs, but with the study of Arthurian legend. Colin Perks was consumed by an overriding passion to discover the final resting place of King Arthur. Years of research uh, led him to believe the grave was somewhere near an old abbey in Glastonbury, England. In 2000, as his toils were coming to a head, Perks got a phone call from someone claiming familiarity with his work. The caller, a woman, spoke in careful clipped tones, asking Perks if they could meet in person. He agreed, despite having no clue how the woman could know anything about his work, he hadn't published a scrap of it, nor had he shared his obsession with friends for fear of ridicule. He was a very private guy. At 7 p.m. on the arranged evening, Perks answered the expected knock at his door to see what he would later describe as the most beautiful woman (laughs) in the world. (laughs) She stood six feet tall and was dressed in a form-fitting black dress suit. She appeared to be about 40 years old, her skin was milk white, the hair cascading down her shoulders was jet black. She introduced herself as Miss Sarah Key and waited patiently on the doorstep for a stunned Perks to invite her in. The conversation started out on the wrong foot. Sarah claimed that she and her colleagues had followed Perks's efforts for years. Perks shot back that this was rubbish. His research had been kept secret. Miss Key nonetheless rattled off detail after detail, proving that she was indeed acquainted with what Perks had been up to. She went on to claim that the final resting place of King Arthur was in fact the portal to a nightmarish realm teeming with creatures straight out of Lovecraft. These beings, she said, would wreak unmitigated havoc if allowed access to our world. As Perks tried to process what this woman was saying, she leaned in close. You cannot begin to understand the enormity of what stands before you, she said. That is why I am visiting you and not someone else. Unless you let this matter drop, that someone else will come calling, and believe me, you do not want that. Key showed herself out in as businesslike a manner as she arrived, leaving Perks scratching his head. But the stubborn Englishman wasn't about to let some unhinged stranger scare him off the fulfillment of his life's work. He ignored Miss Key's warning and proceeded as planned. Quote, around 9 p.m. on Saturday night in early November, writes Nick Redfern, Perks was driving home from the city of Bath along a particularly long stretch of tree-shrouded road. Oddly, given that this was a weekend evening on the fringes of a bustling city, Perks said that he saw absolutely no other cars. End quote. Suddenly his headlights fell across a figure standing in the middle of the road. Perks jammed on his brakes. As his car screeched to a halt, Perks saw to his horror that the figure Was standing around seven feet tall and sporting two massive bat-like wings its skin was horrifically translucent revealing the skeleton and delicate network of veins beneath most terrifying of all was the creature's head hairless crowned with pointed ears and two horrible eyes that glowed red a pair of long lethal fangs glistened from the sneer below the creature's hooked nose Instinctively, Perks slammed his foot down on the accelerator, but the creature vanished before his car made contact. A week later, the creature... I like his
1: instincts.
0: Right? I I mean, I'd be like, fuck this this thing! Um, A week later, the creature would appear again, above Perks' bed while he slept.
1: I don't like that.
0: Perks awoke to find the creature hovering over him, its fanged mouth gaping wide. The horror lunged forward, grabbing him by the throat. You were were warned that I would come, it croaked in a wet, guttural voice. With that, the beast was gone, and so, needless to say, was any desire for Perks to continue his work. He died in 2009 of a heart attack, having never revealed the exact location of King Arthur's final resting place as he found it, and convinced his otherworldly assailant and the mysterious Sarah Key were one and the same being. Now, this is a lot to take in, to say the least. Uh, Are the men and sometimes women in black aliens pretending to be human? Are they humans pretending to be alien? Are they demons? Is their purpose to drive seekers of truth off the scent, to discredit them by implanting stories few people in their right minds would believe? Before we depart from this topic, it's worth looking at one more school of thought, I haven't said that in a long time, with regards to what the MIB might actually be. Researcher Chris O'Brien notes that the men in black, when they appear, quote, seem to be badly briefed. It's like they manifest for a particular task but exist in a framework of having no context. In other words, they seem like manufactured temporary entities that don't have any depth to them, end quote. In fact, they're a lot like the Tibetan Tulpa. Now, to understand Ah. what a tulpa is, let's look at the life and work of Alexandra David Neal, a Belgian-French explorer and the first Western woman to be granted the title of Lama in Tibet. She lived... She's a fascinating person. Oh, my God. Um... She lived from 1868 to 1969, and to call hers an eventful life barely scratches the surface. The memoirs about her adventures in the Himalayas, Magic and Mystery in Tibet, published in 1932, gave Westerners the first glimpse of the tulpa. The word is Tibetan in origin and signifies a thought form brought into physical being by concerted mental effort, typically by a Tibetan monk. Uh, Through long and difficult meditation, the tulpa gradually attains physical form independent of the conjurer's imagination. Essentially, it's a being brought to life by intense, sustained visualization. Alexandra David Neal was fascinated by this legend and spent months trying to conjure a tulpa of her own. She pictured a fat, jolly Franciscan monk along the lines of Friar Tuck, The process put an enormous strain on her mental faculties, not to mention being profoundly time-consuming, but after a while, through sheer force of uh, of will, the monk seemed to become real. In uh, Alexandra's own words, quote, "'He became a kind of guest living in my apartment. I then broke my seclusion and started for a tour with my servants and tents. The monk included himself in the party.' Though I lived in the open riding on horseback for miles each day, the illusion persisted. It was not necessary for me to think of him to make him appear. The phantom performed various actions of the kind that are natural to travellers and that I had not commanded. For example, he walked, stopped, looked around him. The illusion was mostly visual, but sometimes I felt as if a robe was lightly rubbing against me, and once a hand seemed to touch my shoulder.' Over time, a bit like Frankenstein's monster, the creation rel, uh, rebelled against its creator. Its warm, affable manner slowly gave way to something more dark and sinister. The fat, chubby-cheeked fellow grew leaner, she writes. His face assumed a vaguely mocking, sly, malignant look. He became more troublesome and bold. In brief, he escaped by control. Realizing the situation was getting out of hand, David Neal decided to dematerialize him. The tulpa, however, did not go quietly. Only after a strict regimen of intense meditation lasting six months, during which the tulpa fought tooth and nail, did Alexandra David Neal succeed in banishing it back into the confines of her mind. Now, crazy though all this may sound, it actually squares with centuries of Tibetan Buddhist practice. In fact, according to legend, David Neal's experience isn't unique. Talbas are known to be habitual troublemakers, loath to surrender their existence once they've fulfilled the purpose for which they were conjured. Frequently, they stray from that purpose altogether, breaking free from the magician and sustaining themselves on the psychic energy of unsuspecting victims, existing for as long as they can find an energy supply. Could yeah. the men in black the accidental tulpas brought into existence by generations of ufologists raised on the cautionary tale of Albert Bender. Could writers right. like John Keel, Gray Barker, and others have somehow given life to these creatures by just believing in them? Could it be the MIB encounters take on such bizarre, absurdist dimensions because these suit-wearing menaces are, in effect, struggling to exist moment to moment, feeding on the fear and bewilderment of those to whom they have manifest? Fuck if I know. <laughs> but it's interesting <laughs> to think about and Charles Fort, well there's
1: that there's oh. that conversation too with like Slender Man and mm-hmm. some of the newer right, right creations of yeah if enough people believe it is it real
0: well and certainly uh, our, old, our old buddy uh, Carl Gustav Jung um, he theorized that flying saucers were were uh, manifestations of mental energy like in so many words like mm-hmm. that they were real but they weren't like nuts and bolts craft they were they were and not a mass illusion. Like they had reality, but they were sort of thought into being by the people witnessing them. Mm-hmm. And that they, in fact, you know, that they're, because they were, well, that's a whole other episode, but like it's fascinating. Um, all, all of which is to say, Charles Fort, the granddaddy of modern paranormal research, who I mentioned at the beginning of all this last week, you'll recall, would happily consider the possibility of the tulpa. Uh, one last note. I'll leave you with this little tidbit of MIB lore. It just so happens the men in black are said to put in the occasional appearance at Albany Rural Cemetery in New York, hmm. Charles hmm. Forts final resting place.
1: Oh.
0: Yeah, so that is and I could go on and on and on. This this the thing is so deep, Jamie. It goes back into like the their their um the book I mentioned last week, uh, uh, the secret rituals of the Men in Black, and uh, the case book on the Men in Black, they go. The authors talk about like the potential influence of of Men in Black on uh, the founding of America and the French Revolution right. and stuff. Uh, and there's even, on a side note, there's a very fascinating story about Aleister Crowley uh, having, uh, in order to do this year-long ritual, he rented a house. <laughs> <laughs> next to next to Loch Ness, and fucked up. Like he, uh, the ritual didn't go as planned, and uh, Aleister Crowley went to his grave. Ah, uh, convinced he had conjured the Loch Ness monster into being, and also the Men in Black, that they're denizens of <laughs> of this thing called the Black Lodge, which is an esoteric concept from from thelema and and okay. theosophy and all sorts of stuff. But yeah, so it just goes back and back and back. So these this is just a smattering of the Men in Black legend, but it's so much weirder than what than Will Smith and <laughs> and Tommy yeah, Lee. Yeah, it really is. <laughs>
1: well, and it makes you think too, like what sort of government. Or or other groups are using that men in black mm-hmm. idea to, you know what I mean? What are mm-hmm. they're making the most out of? Who the Men in Black are, and
0: maybe, and yeah,
1: and it's putting putting that on so that they can get more information, or and it's quite possible that know. if they
0: if they are tulpas, kind of living off of intense emotions that they inspire in their victims, then it's it could be that their whole point is not to make people swear off UFO sightings or or Arthurian or ghost hunting or whatever. It's just to be like to come to them and be like, oh, you expected me, so now I'm going to make you think that like they're they're living up to right. the fiction in order to freak the shit out of the person they're seeing so they can feed on that energy, because that's right. apparently what a tulpa does. As they ex- they right, like yeah. to excite intense emotions, and of course, fear is is the easiest one to inspire. If you're already a weird fucking thing, <laughs>
1: yeah, right, exactly. Wow, so, that's crazy. Yeah,
0: yeah isn't it crazy. Yeah. So thank so, you, thank you. I've been wanting to do that topic for a yeah. while, and, and no, I still good. feel like I only scratched the surface. But
1: I am no going I to pick it up just a little bit to extend it with some. Because uh, so last time I talked about famous UFO sightings.
0: Yes, 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 and so, yes.
1: so moving on, I think we should take a little break. But when we come back, it will be UFO abductions. <gasps> dun,
0: dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. I love it. So Let's take a break. break we'll come back. Refresh our drinks and we'll be right back. Hey, guess what? What?
1: It's our one and only commercial.
0: I love it's that. It's new. I love that we only have one commercial and it's for us. Yeah.
1: It's new for June. So yes. this is for our Patreon. Uh, we're going to try to make this one shorter than last time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so we can get to the good uh, shit.
1: So we can get to the good stuff. But uh, please join our Patreon. We appreciate everyone uh, who has already joined. If uh, you can, we appreciate any support so that we can remain commercial three- free.
0: <laughs> commercial free.
1: <laughs> for free three. for commercial the podcast. Free. So that yeah. means no commercials except for this one for the podcast. Um you guys really help us, and uh, we really, really appreciate it. We have a Discord that's available, uh, depending upon the tier. You can go to patreon.com slash intentions to find out those different tiers. If you choose the Discord tier, we have two Discord chats per month. Yes. We'll have—what uh, days are those, Michael? Uh,
0: this month, it'll be June 16th for the uh, Phantasms, correct? Or no, for for no. that's uh, sorry. June sixteenth will be the all skate, <laughs> and uh, as we like to call it, where everyone on the Discord can can uh, come and ask us questions. And uh, the one for the Phantasmas will be June thirtieth. That's uh, both times will be at seven p.m. Central Standard Time. That's and, right. And
1: uh, it should be a blast. It should be. So uh, if you want to join the Discord chat, you have to be on one of those Discord tiers. I think they start at $8, um, but you can join several different types of tiers. So go check that out. Please support us. We appreciate everybody who is so supportive. And don't forget to continue sending your stories to ghoulintentions.com on the menu. Thank you so much. Thank you. (laughs) I got Dot bit me.
0: Dot bit you?
1: She did. It was an accident
0: she was just playing right? and okay. we were
1: playing, but I mean, it it hurt. I was like, "ow, oh, I thought like it was, I felt it on the top of my um my nail. Ow! I was like, oh, you know, ouch. And then, um, I caught up I, I mean, she got in trouble for playing too hard, and I sent uh-huh. her to the other room, and she was was surprised she didn't realize she'd got me She's that like, hard, but and I would never right and then um i was like jeez that hurts and i got up and turned my hand over and she bit through my finger and there was blood everywhere <sighs> <laughs> so we got it cleaned off the couch thank god for that enzyme clean cleaner <laughs> it's amazing it it, like you dabbed it it took the blood right off of our cream-colored couch and then um (laughs) (laughs) but i mean it bled and it bled and i have been painting this week because we're getting the girls room you know we're painting it and so it's got stripes and everything so it's Mm -hmm. yellow and then pink and like teal and yellow striped onto the big wall Uh and so i've been doing that (laughs) oh no i dropped my thing. And uh, uh, but I've been doing it with like a hole in my finger, and I need to pour more alcohol in it because I can feel that
0: ew. maybe it's
1: not 100 percent clean. <laughs> it? It,
0: hurts. Uh, it hurts.
1: I don't know. It's very. Uh, I don't. I didn't realize how much I use my ring finger.
0: Yeah, it's crazy. Like, I, so we, Gus is uh, very active, like, when he, well, I mean, more than Genji, which is not yeah. saying a lot. But, like, he'll, when he plays, he plays, and he gets kind of rough, and um it's, we have a problem with him with other dogs, because he wants to play with every dog, and he wants to play rough. Like, he's not aggressive, yeah. but he wants to wrestle, and he doesn't realize when other dogs are like, back the fuck off, kid, I don't want to yeah. play with you, I'm not playing, I'm gonna fuck your shit up. And he's like, oh, yeah, 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 blah, blah, blah. and so it's just... We're just waiting for him to get the shit kicked out of him by yeah. another dog because we're like, oh, gosh, come on. You're he needs be- to
1: come over and get some Dexter play.
0: It is funny how when he plays with Genji, Genji will play rough. And eventually yeah. Genji, like, and so here's the thing, and I got to film it. Um, the chair in the bedroom is just tall enough for him to get under it. Uh, but Genji mm. can't. And so he'll go and fuck with Genji, like bite at his ankle or something, and then run away and dive under the chair so Genji can't follow him. And then he'll come back out. And then when Genji walks away, he'll come back out and do the same thing. It's fucking hilarious. I'm like, it's the yeah. cutest goddamn thing. But one day Genji is just going to fucking eat his lunch.
1: Yeah. Mm. Oh, for sure. Mm. Yeah. Mm, mm, mm. Um. Okay, okay. Enough about dogs and, and broken fingers. Uh, 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 let's get into these stories. Alien abduction. Alien abductions, of course. I found several stories from Ranker, but they're all from Reddit. Mm, mm, mm. So I'm going to use the Reddit users. User. So the first one is anonymous. Um, apparent they've deleted their accounts since they've said it. Uh-oh. So of course this they've is been, all Reddit. They've been
0: visited by the Men in Black.
1: <laughs> I guess so. Um, that's all Reddit. So who knows? But they are supposed to be real stories. Okay. Mm, so okay. I can't f- say for sure what happened to me that night, but here is what I know. I was driving home for the weekend from school at Indiana University. It takes me about two hours to get home, and I left Bloomington around 10 p.m. At exactly 10.53, I am on a rural stretch of the two-lane highway I take home, and I notice what appeared to be flashing lights behind me. I thought... Great, I'm going to get pulled over. So I turned onto the next country road about a quarter mile from where I noticed the lights. As the car came to a stop, I started to open my glove box and get out my registration and proof of insurance. The lights suddenly disappeared, Mm. and no car drove past. Now, here is where the story takes a turn for the weird, and I am sure you guys will think I just make it all up because it really does seem like something straight out of a typical UFO movie or story. The electronics in my car started to go haywire. The radio was randomly changing stations while the volume kept going up and down while the dome lights and headlights started to flicker and turn off and back on. Ooh. This was at 10.56 PM. Ugh. I start thinking to myself that my battery must be failing or else I have a short somewhere in the electric system of my car. So I lean down to pop the hood so I can take a look at the battery. And that is the last thing I remember doing. (sighs) uh oh the next thing i know i open my eyes and see nothing but the night sky full of bright stars it was a cold night and it seemed like i had never seen the stars that bright in my life i sat up and looked around and saw absolutely nothing nothing at all i was in the middle of a field Surrounded by corn stalks left over from the recent harvest.
0: Don't you hate it when that happens? It's the fucking I hate worst. My like, God, <laughs> damn it! I told you guys to take my keys.
1: As I started to come to my senses, I started to freak out. Where am I? Why the fuck am I asleep in the middle of a field? Where the fuck is my car? I got up and started walking toward the distant headlights I could see from a road about half a mile away. When I got to the nearest intersection, I looked at the signs, which read 350 North and 50 West. I was half a mile away from my car, which was just right off the main road. I started walking toward the headlights I could see on the main road. I can't say how long it took me to walk the half mile, but it couldn't have been more than 10 or 15 minutes. When I arrived at my car, all the lights were out. My battery had died which struck me as odd because I couldn't have been gone for that long. I looked at my phone, which was sitting on the passenger seat, and the time was 2.17 a.m. Over three hours had passed since I turned off onto the side road for the flashing lights behind me. I remember sitting in my car completely dumbfounded, wondering what the hell had just happened to me. After about half an hour of just sitting there, I remembered that my battery was dead, so I got on f- on the phone and called AAA to come out and give me a jump. It took about half an hour for them to get out to me since I was a good distance away from the nearest town, during which time I just sat in silence, running through the possible scenarios in my head concerning what had just happened. <coughs> to this day, I couldn't tell you what really happened to me that night. All I know is I can't think of any plausible explanation as to why I woke up over half a mile away from my car in the middle of a cornfield more than three hours after I had stopped. I've only shared the story with one other person, my uncle. I'm sure people would either look at me like I'm crazy or they would call bullshit on the whole story. And I can't blame them. If Somebody came to me with a story like that so so closely mirrors the stereotypical encounter story. I probably wouldn't believe them either.
0: That's crazy, but I—I I mean, yeah. I believe it. I totally believe it. I mean, um, first of all, if it's aliens and it might be, they're real <laughs> dicks for not just putting you back in your car. Like they can—they right. have the fucking technology. They're just fucking flexing.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: Like, well, we'll leave you over here, they so have to walk like half a mile <laughs> back to your car in the fucking right. two a.m. Like fucking fuck you, fuck you, like really, god damn it. They
1: must have been so. It's like
0: tired someone breaking into your house day. and shitting on the stove.
1: <laughs>
0: on the stove. You're like, why did you have that to do that? Warm- like I get it. Go leave with my entertainment stuff, but like, why did you shit on my stove? <laughs>
1: <laughs> that That's would, such that, a random thing. It is. On my stove. I'm not
0: I'm not saying it's ever happened to me.
1: It's and if it does, so I'm blaming this
0: podcast. But it's like, you know, if someone breaks into your home and and in addition to stealing your shit, they also do something really fucking just mean Michael, that was not essential.
1: Have you- have you ever broken into someone's home and shed on their stove before?
0: I plead the fifth.
1: Ah. Uh, <laughs> all right. It's just so specific.
0: It was just, <laughs> look, things come together in my head certain ways. I just have to, I, they have to come out there. You know, look, I can't, you can't expect me to do an entire episode of the Men in Black and then, like, comment, like, logical things. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's true. That's very true. Why all right, did you shit on my on. forehead?
0: I wasn't even here. How did you do that? Sorry. Go on. Uh, that's, yeah, sure.
1: Uh, moving on to uh, Negative Cap S is the Reddit user. <laughs> I love this these took, names. I'm pretty sure that's Their just someone's so
0: password. Cool.
1: Negative Cap S. <laughs> this took place in 1997, Colorado Springs, Colorado. We had such a good time in Colorado Springs. We did.
0: We did. Yeah. Oh. Oh, we might have oh had, we had, we had an alien pants. abduction ourselves. <laughs>
1: That's where I could feel my pants. It was aliens. And
0: that's where I could feel my pants a lot.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I was eight years old, playing in the sand volleyball court at the park down the street from my house. I was engrossed in my activity, burying my collection of Happy Meal toys in the sand, and then (laughs) digging them back out.
0: Relatable. I was looking,
1: just as you do, bury, dig. I used to, I used to
0: freeze mine. I used to put mine in glasses of water and freeze them in the freezer. So you take them out, and you take them out of the the little plastic cups they were in. You'd have these little blocks of ice, of like frozen in time.
1: Uh, (laughs) Did you lick them until they? Like a popsicle?
0: No, I'm going to do that now. I'm going to go do it all now right. and like put a different like flavor water in there so it's like, you know, uh, like, oh, it's a blueberry ice man. I'm, <laughs> I was a weird child, and I am still a weird adult.
1: Yeah, that's all right. No one's judging. <laughs> we all like that about you. I um, hope so. Uh, uh, I was looking down but de- decided suddenly that I needed to look up because the world around me had lost all sound. There was no longer any ambient noise, no traffic noise from the busy streets just a block over, no more dogs barking, no more birds chirping. I looked at the street that bordered the park, and that is when I saw it. It looked like a stealth bomber turned sideways, nose leading one wing down toward the road and the other pointed up to the sky. It was completely shiny black in color, as tall as a house, and shaped like an arrowhead. It was cruising the street at three miles per hour, just gliding over the road. I watched it for maybe 20 seconds. As soon as it had passed behind some two-story houses and out of my sight, I got my hearing back full force. I ran home with my pee soaked pants and never spoke a <laughs> word of it to anybody.
0: <laughs> that one it's is a, so weird. That's a very weird one, and I could also see like that like you can't tell that story because your parents will be mad at you for. Are, were you burying your Happy Meal toys again?
1: Again, so far away <laughs> from the house. Um... Wow. Yeah, that one's weird. And the and the Woo. sound, to lose the sound, yeah. that's so crazy. I'm not going
0: to lie, the sound bit sounds a little like heaven. I'm like, oh, that'd be great. No noise <sighs> at it's all. It's so
1: quiet. Yeah, yeah. Okay, next we have Robert3131. <laughs>
0: Another password.
1: <laughs> right. We should be writing all this these is, down
0: so we can get into these people's bank accounts.
1: I know, right? Uh, this is the craziest UFO phenomenon, true story, and it came from my dad. Mm. In 1960s in Ethiopia, my dad is just a child, nine years old at the time, playing with his best friend Gabriel after school. They were playing in the fenced backyard of my dad's house. My dad turns his back for a second, then turns to look back at his friend, and Gabriel is gone. It's important to note that my dad and Gabriel were from the top 1% of Ethiopia's ruling elite. My dad's father was a minister of interior of Ethiopia, and Gabriel's father was a four-star general of Ethiopia. The backyard Gabriel disappeared from had 10-foot brick walls with armed guards patrolling on the outside.
0: Wow. Okay.
1: A couple of hours pass. His parents, my dad's parents, and guards are searching, but no Gabriel. 48 hours pass. Now there's a nationwide search for this important general's kid. It's on the news. People are searching door to door, describing him and what he was wearing when he disappeared. He was wearing his private school uniform, white shirt, and brown pants. Helicopters even searched the countryside looking for him, but still nothing. A month passes, then two, then four. Whoa. People start losing hope that he would ever be found and think the worst. Mm-hmm exactly six months to the day he disappeared gabriel appears back in my dad's backyard he was wearing the same white shirt private school uniform and it was still clean he looked exactly the same as when he disappeared this is when shit starts to get weird once they confirmed he was okay they started asking where he had been he said a couple of nice men took him on a trip He was in a white room that glowed, and other children were there from different countries. He said he was surprised that the nice men who looked like white guys could speak Ethiopian, and he could understand what the other children were saying, even though they were not Ethiopian. The white glowing room had no windows, and the doors disappeared into the walls. There were buttons on the walls, and if a kid pushed them, a bed would come out of the wall. He was then all of a sudden in a city that was glowing and clean with cars flying around him. He said there were people there, but they looked strange, like us, but different. One nice man was still with him and took him to a tall building where he had to stay for a while. The man then showed him a room that he could use for entertainment. Gabriel said he could push a button and the room itself would go places, including an open field, the beach. The room itself even flew. He said wow. after a couple of hours, he was taken back to Ethiopia and appeared in the backyard. He thought he was only gone a couple of hours total. No one believed him. And with Ethiopia being super religious, <laughs> a super religious country, most adults around him thought he got possessed. Gabriel was even forced to see a priest to get the evil spirits out of him. My dad wow. still kept in contact with him throughout their lives. Gabriel got a doctorate in physics and I believe works in Holland.
0: <laughs> and he now makes rooms that can fly. Um, That's right. Maybe it just took, maybe he was gone for six months because it took the aliens that long to find where to put him back. Because apparently they have an <laughs> right. issue with that. They're like, oh, he's a kid. We can't just put him in some field. We have to, Wow, Fuck.
1: Yeah, Technology is so right.
0: advanced, but they, you know, we don't have like the the abductee equivalent of Star sixty nine.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs>
0: like, where do we just, pick you up? Shit! Oh, this fuck.
1: story is so Flight to the navigator. I have it to really read it. It is, is. Yeah, I was just thinking about
0: that movie the other day. It's um, so good. I hadn't seen it in forever. I don't. Is it good? I I honestly don't remember it if is. it's good or not.
1: It is. Sarah Jessica Parker's in it. Little baby Sarah Jessica Parker. Yeah. God, <sighs> yeah, it's so fun. I should make it. I didn't
0: know. I can't remember. I didn't didn't remember she was in that. It's
1: really fun. I liked it a lot.
0: Wow. I do remember thinking, like, it was really, like, how cool to get to, like, fly a spacecraft. Like, how fucking badass would that be?
1: Ugh. Yeah. I still dream of that. I mean, it was, yeah, it's such a good movie. Okay. Okay. Well, maybe I should watch it again before I say that. (laughs) It's been years. I really loved it as a child. (laughs) Okay. Next... We have meaningless debate man, which makes me a little suspicious, <laughs> I'm not gonna lie.
0: It's but. really Ben Shapiro.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Ugh. Ugh. <laughs>
0: Why can't aliens abduct that son of a bitch?
1: <laughs> man, right, or at least put They'd them back be like, together they be, correctly. Yeah,
0: actually don't abduct him because I don't want them to think we're all like
1: that. <laughs> oh, that's true too. Yeah. <laughs> okay, here we go. I grew up in the Arctic. Arctic. Arctic.
0: It's just a string of consonants. Arctic.
1: (laughs) He grew up where it was cold. Okay in the town i lived in as long as it was a clear night it was extremely normal occurrence to see all sorts of strange lights move across the sky keep in mind the winter is long in the arctic which means longer amounts of times being spent under the stars mm. it's quite beautiful as long as you don't mind the cold so much sometimes i would drive a snowmobile snowmobile a few kilometers out of town shut it down and just lay down on the snow looking up at the majesty of it all the only thing disturbing and- uh, the only thing disturbing the silence being the occasional breeze. Hmm. The northern lights are also a common occurrence. It doesn't happen every day, but often enough they start getting ignored after a while, as long as they aren't too spectacular anyway. Hmm. One particular night, without asking my parents' permission, it was their snowmobile, I decided to go on one of my midnight drives out of town. Um, I drove a few kilometers over the hill to find a spot devoid of light pollution from town, shut off the machine, and settled into a good spot to look up and be retrospective. Hmm. It wasn't all that interesting <laughs> like, a scene. A consider few my life my passing... choices
0: and the fact that I just you know, stole my parents' snowmobile. <laughs>
1: Right, just for a little while.
0: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> burn it. Um,
1: it wasn't all that interesting a scene. A few satellites passing here and there, some relatively boring activity affecting the magnetic field, etc. And then I started noticing a clicking noise. At first, I thought it was the sound of the snow machine cooling down as engines expand and contracts a lot in the cold. Um, but this. Yeah, that makes sense, right? <laughs> I read it kind of choppy, but yeah, engine's no, I, expanding yeah. and, yeah, the engine's cooling down.
0: Right, right, right. Like that little but tick, the source, tick, 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 tick.
1: Yeah, but the source of the sound definitely wasn't coming from that direction. My next thought was there must be an animal nearby, in which case I need to get out of there fast. You don't really want to mess with wild animals, but the clicking is far too regular for an animal to produce it. It was fairly mechanical sounding and again the source of of the sound is not coming from anywhere around me laterally. Hmm. It was coming from above. So naturally I look up, determined to ascertain the origin of this strange noise. I see what I always see. Stars, northern lights, a lazy satellite crossing the sky, all normal stuff. But before I dismiss it altogether and begin heading home, I notice something strange in the aurora borealis. There were three uh, rather strong points of light. I ignored them at first, thinking they were oddly symmetrical stars, but this proved false. They were definitely getting brighter. I kept staring in morbid fascination as they grew stronger and stronger, yet still only remaining single points in the sky. All the while, the clicking noise is getting louder and louder and more pronounced, almost like someone started with tapping a pin on a desk, to clacking billiard balls together inside my head. Then it stops. The lights are gone, the clicking is not heard, and aside from being a little stiff, cold, and rather petrified, I'm fine. So I jump back on the snowmobile, thinking maybe I'm going crazy. The machine takes a little longer than usual to start up, and I'm beginning to worry, but soon it's running and I'm heading back to town. As I'm driving back, several plausible scenarios as to what occurred are running through my head. I'm thinking it could have been a helicopter from the mine or some strange northern lights behavior. Probably not that big of a deal. I pull up to my house. Lights are all dark. Strange. It wasn't that late when I left. I open the outer door as quietly as possible, remove my winter gear, and enter through the inner door. The house is quiet. Really quiet. Really quiet. My parents are teachers and are usually up late marking or watching TV. So All I'm thinking is I have to get to bed without anyone noticing, which proves to be easy as I'm soon under my covers. I go to set my alarm for the next day. All of a sudden, everything makes sense. Engine hard to start, stiff, rather chilly, nobody up when I was gone in what felt like a relatively short period of time. It was almost 11 p.m. when I left, and now... It's creeping up on 6 a.m. I stood staring at clicking lights for almost seven hours. Damn. I never ended up sleeping that night, and I don't go on late-night snow machine rides anymore. (laughs) I bet not. Oh, my God, yes. That's
0: (sighs) so creepy. That's so... It's so believable because I mean, like, the only option is to like actually stay away for that long to give the story more credibility. Mm-hmm. In case anyone's at home, going, "Where the fuck were you?" And who does that? Who would just fucking? Oh, I'm just gonna lay down in this field for you know three, four hours in the middle of the night just for a joke, you know? Because you gotta figure night
1: yeah, in the Arctic.
0: Yeah, 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 for seven hours in the yeah. Mm, 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 mm. Seems seems mm-hmm. unlikely.
1: Mm-hmm. All right, next we have. Uber Rob, Uber <laughs> OB? I'm not sure.
0: Okay. Uber Rob, Uber Rob. I like Uber Rob. Uber Rob. Yeah, before I tell my villain. story,
1: <laughs> yeah, right. He's like. The best, Rob. Uh, Before I tell my story, (laughs) I'd like to say that I am a complete skeptic and question anything and everything supernatural. I think extraordinary claims should always require extraordinary evidence. Even to this day, I will never be able to empirically prove what I experienced. I'm currently 26 years old. This happened on June 16th, 2007. I remember it vividly. It was immediately embedded in my long-term memory when it ha- when it all happened in psychology, I believe they refer to these events as flashbulb memories. Anyway, I was Mm. living in my parents' home at the time. It was a pretty stormy night. The wind was gusting slightly more than usual. Rain was coming down violently. Your typical crackles of thunder, lightning. Crackles. I was playing... Crackles. I was playing World of Warcraft at the time, enjoying the idea that I had a legitimate excuse not to go out and do anything. (laughs) I was about to finish one of the longest chain quests in the game when the internet goes out. I try for about 30 anxious minutes to get the internet to work, and you guessed it. Nothing. I head to my room, frustrated. Here I am, home alone. No internet and irritated as hell. My parents at the time were out at a work-related event. I remember laying on my bed, just staring at the ceiling. I turned my head to look at my old retro alarm clock. It read 6.18 p.m. Knock, knock, knock. I immediately sprung up, eyes wide open, startled as hell. I crawled to my window that faces the front door and knock, knock, knock again. I peek outside my window to see three tall men, literally dressed in your typical FBI-looking black suits. Uh-huh,
0: uh-huh, uh-huh.
1: <laughs> one had what looked to be a folder or file or something, and another have what I now identified as a Geiger counter. And the other one was beating my door with his huge fist. I head to the door, not really thinking much of it. I honestly thought they were church people just soliciting their beliefs. I open the door. The one man nearest the door who was knocking greets me in a very monotone voice, pulls out a badge, and says he and his colleagues need to check the water source from the house's faucets. I asked them a bunch of questions. It turns out they were, in fact, the FBI, and someone had allegedly tried to poison the city water. I called my parents to let them know what was going on. They okayed the situation. The guys in the suits didn't even check the water in my house. Mm -hmm. They had some other group of government guys show up and check. I tried to ask if there was a motive or if it was a terrorist act. They simply said they couldn't talk about it in detail. Then, oh. <laughs> out of nowhere, all the lights in the house go out. It's pitch black. The guy in suits tells the guys in suits tell everyone to stay calm. They think it's just a power outage. The guys taking water samples turn on their flashlights. As one of the flashlights flashes over the tallest of the suited men, I see a reflection from his face. There was metal under his face. What? That's what it says. (laughs) I'm I'm just like, what? The guy with the flashlight quickly directs the light somewhere else. A moment later, the guy with the flashlight says, sir, it has begun. The suited guy with the Geiger counter turns it on. The thing just starts going haywire. Not even three seconds later, it felt as if I was being pulled into a million different directions. I could not see anything at first, just excruciating pain. I thought I was in the process of being disintegrated alive. Out of nowhere, I see nothing but white. I literally thought I was in what some religious people would call heaven. A man appears to me and smiles, swinging his arm in an inviting way as if I were entering a ballroom dance or party. I try to walk, but nothing. Then, the white room gets sucked into itself and I see my life flash before my eyes. I see everything, Disneyland at 5, my first kiss at 15, watching 9-11 happen on TV with mom and dad, everything. I see Earth suspended in space. I'm watching Earth from above and then I fall. I am falling, heart racing, numbness, disbelief. I see the ground getting closer and closer. I know this is it and I know I will die. Before I hit the ground, I hear the monotone voice of the suited man say in my head, do not static and white noise, no matter what. God. I woke up in my bed. What a
0: place to (laughs) glitch out.
1: I know. Whatever you you do, don't.
0: Got it? Okay.
1: Sure. I woke up in bed with a cold sweat and panic. I freaked the fuck out and ran downstairs to find my parents cooking dinner. I run back upstairs and see that the time is 6.22 p.m. I was relieved to find out but a dream. It was, it was only a dream, but it gets creepy. I go back downstairs and ask my parents when they got home. They told me they'd been, home, uh, they'd been home as it was their day off. I asked how their company event went, and they said it was last week. Oh. I asked them what time I fell asleep. They told me they didn't know I was sleeping. I go to my computer and find that my World of Warcraft account was logged in where I left off before the internet went down. I oh. check my computer for the date, and it was the 23rd. I have literally no memory of a full week. Oh! I try to recall what had happened in my dream, but it was a blur. I go back upstairs and see that it looked like someone went through my closet. I searched around and freaked the fuck out. The exact same Geiger counter the alleged FBI agent was holding is oh, no. in my closet.
0: No. I've never told
1: anyone about this until now. I still have the Geiger counter and I don't know what to do with it. I've spent since spent the last decade trying to put the pieces together. I just live day by day as an ordinary person, hoping they don't return.
0: <laughs> and be like, "Hey, bro, sorry, we left our Geiger counter."
1: Yeah. Oopsies.
0: Oh. You're like, sorry, I I, uh, I pawned it.
1: Yeah, oopsies.
0: <laughs> to the goodwill now. No.
1: Yeah. Ooh. So I thought we'd end, yeah, that oh. on the... Uh, oh, that's creepy A little creepy bit of Men fuck. in Black creepiness. When they leave yes. a little
0: something behind. That happens from time to time. Yeah. Uh, but it's always like something ridiculous that you can't use. It's like, what, what the fuck am I going to do with the Geiger counter?
1: Right. <laughs> Just make sure that there's no... And do not what? No matter like, what? Well, no matter, matter what, what you no do, don't
0: what. write about the Geiger counter on Reddit. <laughs>
1: it's shit. <laughs> oh, damn it. You should have been more specific. <laughs> man am Black? Gosh. Damn it.
0: Of all the times yeah. I think they just do that to fuck with you, they just do that to fuck with you. Yep, oh, definitely. man. Oh, that's good. <sighs>
1: that's good. Yeah. Nice creepy stories. Ooh,
0: thank you very much, Jamie.
1: No problem. I just I wanted thought... to... You know, send this one out with a, you know, a nice, creepy. It's
0: lost time. It's lost time. Want people to get up from this uh, podcast and be like, I've been in a field for seven hours. You're welcome.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We'll leave the recording and be like, we were recording for 12 hours.
0: I think, except we're all on lockdown. So like, who knows what time is anymore? Like I do everything and it takes seven hours just to fill the day.
1: Time has never been more relative than in 2020. (laughs) Oh, shit. Oh, my God. (laughs) It's just. Oh, God. Oh, my Jimmy. God. It's so oh, weird. It is very, very weird. Yeah. But thank you
0: guys for listening to, yes, to you, uh, these episodes. If you have any, if you liked it, let us know because I know we kind of strayed from our normal topic of ghosties and stuff and decided to, yeah. to kind of focus on aliens and UFOs because that's also Fortian and, and paranormal and weird and creepy. So if you liked ghouly. it, let us know. And if you have it's any other ghouly. ideas or if you have similar stories, you can yeah, send you those in any- too.
1: UFO stories, men in black stories, ghost stories—of course, are always
0: acceptable. Mm, mm, mm-hmm. um, alien ghosts. <laughs>
1: alien ghosts <sighs> with missing time and hearing footsteps. Yes. Hashtag yeah, all in one.
0: <laughs> hashtag fuck a skylight, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> We're just—we just don't like anything.
1: No, we um. hate everything. We just hate everything. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. All right. Well, everybody, thank you again. Ghoulintentions.com. You can submit your stories there. Um, Discord and our patrons, thank you so much. Um, I think we have our next Discord next week. I'm sure the commercial has that date on it.
0: Um, <laughs> I hope so. so, you
1: know, it's on there. Uh, but anyway, thank you guys so much. Stay safe. Stay sane. And remember. <sighs> It's okay to sleep with the lights on.